0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Hebrews James, First and Second Peter, 1 John, chapter 5. Reading from verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ. Not, by wa- not only by water, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Let's just stop there. Uh, this morning and this evening, I want to wrap up and finish this short series about the blood of Christ. And whenever we talk about the blood There are at least 460 references in the Bible relating to the blood. Somebody said that if you cut this book, it would bleed. And we know that blood represents life and death. Without blood, you are going to die quickly. But we also know that particularly in the Old Testament especially, it's so highlighted there that blood represents spiritual life and spiritual death also. Atoning blood, sacrificial blood, represents spiritual life and spiritual death. Leviticus 17 and 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So far in these messages we have talked about the blood of Jesus. We have spoken about the blood in relation to the Passover, to the Lamb, to the tabernacle, to the mercy seat, to the high priest, to the cross, to Christ, to the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, we have talked about the blood in terms of forgiveness, in terms of fellowship and freedom and fortitude, and we have seen its power and its preciousness and its perseverance And we've looked at the blood as a covering and in terms of a covenant and by way of cleansing. And we've covered all of those things and more. But today I want to show you the correlation, the agreement between the blood and the Spirit, the dependency, actually, of the blood and the Spirit on one another. The friendship if you will, if I wanted to make a little title for this this morning, Between the Blood and the Spirit. Now, that's not something that we're normally conscious of and think about, but it's something that we should know as believers, because it's very, very important. It's profound. And whenever we look into it, I want you to see the the fellowship between the two, the working together, the unity, and how the blood and the Spirit continually works together to affect what is in our lives as believers today, to give us what we need to get through our lives as born-again believers. Now, we just read 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through to 9 or 10. I want to just very, very briefly explain the context of that for you. The Apostle John here, writing at his time in his day, uh, as as all the early church leaders were facing, uh, there was a lot of false teaching and false teachers. And it had begun to creep into the church, and it was a battle against it. It was very subtle. And and one of these false teachers was uh, Cerinthus, And Cerinthus basically denied the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he... Preached this type of a message. He said things like, At Christ's baptism, at Jesus of Nazareth, at his baptism, that's when the Christ Spirit came upon him. He was just an ordinary man, just Jesus of Nazareth. But at his baptism, the Christ Spirit came upon him. But then as he walked through life and he performed all of these miracles, but then when he got to the cross at his crucifixion, at his death, then the Christ Spirit left him. Just a man again. And, of course, we know that as completely and utterly uh, heretical. It's totally and utterly wrong, of course. But that was creeping into the church. It was causing problems, and John had to address this. And part of addressing that was writing this little uh, epistle. In fact, if you look at the very first verse we read in 1 John 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, present tense, is Christ. The Christ. Not someone, that a Christ spirit came upon him for a while and then left again, but is the Christ. And then when you read verse 6, this is he who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water, not only by water, but by water and blood. Now, what does that mean? Well, most commentators and most theologians believe that that's talking about those very two things we have just mentioned. Christ's baptism and Christ's death on the cross. And it says the Spirit is witness to that. And so John here is, 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 is facing this onslaught of false teaching particularly about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his life and his death and so forth, and about his deity, what he's a man, whether he was God, but Truthful, the truth is that he was God in human flesh, and still is in human flesh. He is the Christ, but he is the man Christ Jesus. And the body that he took upon himself on earth, he still retains it, and will retain that throughout all eternity. When we get to see him eventually, we'll see the nail-pierced hands. We'll see him as flesh, as that human being that he was on earth, only glorified and living in a resurrection body, in a glorified body, but a body nonetheless, forever identifying with us. And so John here is talking about this, and he's talking here about the witness uh, to this. Uh, The Father and the Word and the Spirit, they testify to the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you remember, of course, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, where Jesus went to be baptized uh, by John, and how that when he came up out of the water, that the Spirit descended on him as a, as a dove on top of him, and then the voice spoke, the Father spoke from him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So there was a witness by the Spirit and by the Father to the authenticity of Jesus Christ as his son, as the son of God. And we see this again and again in the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, uh, how that the, the Peter was so excited because he saw Elijah and he saw Moses and he saw Jesus in conversation. He says, let us make three booths, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And a voice spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, hear him. And so again and again and again and again, we have this witness by the Father and by the Spirit and by the blood, the fact that his blood was shed was a tremendous witness uh, to Christ. And in John chapter 12, if I just mention this very briefly, in John chapter 12, we know that there were many uh, evidences of what Christ was doing on the cross was real and genuine, that he was the Son of God. There was the sun refused to shine for three hours, there was an earthquake, the, the things split open, the, the, the great veil in the temple was, was ripped in two, and so forth. And uh, even that centurion says, surely this was the Son of God. But one of the greatest witnesses, the greatest witness, was his blood, his shed blood. What does it say in John uh, chapter 12? If I can just get the particular verse from reading from verse 23 of John 12. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it, for eternal, keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. But now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by heard it and said that it thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now the judgment of this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he should die. And so we continually have witness after witness after witness when it comes to Christ and his divinity, but also regarding his death on the cross and so forth. Deuteronomy 19.15, In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Now what I want to do for a few moments this morning is look at this correlation between the Spirit and the blood. Let's see what this means for us today, the importance of the absolute, importance of us understanding that there is a very close correlation between the blood and the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 9... This is where we began a couple of weeks ago in this study. Hebrews chapter 9. Reading from verse 11. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled in the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, Now I want you to note this, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot, To God? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself up to God? That phrase that the writer of the Hebrew uses, who through the eternal Spirit, is very, very unusual. Mostly it would say, who through the Holy Spirit. As far as I know, this is the only time that this term is used, so it is significant. What is the author trying to get us to understand? What is the importance of why use such a term that is not used anywhere else? To let us know that the blood and the spirit are very closely associated. Now, Why was this written this way? Does it simply mean that Jesus offered himself upon the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit? After all, he did everything with the power of the Holy Spirit. The words he spoke, the miracles he performed, the life he led, everything he taught, he was energized, he was helped by the power of the Holy Spirit. So is that what it means? Well, it could be. In fact, there would be nothing wrong with saying that. You would be very much in, in okay to say such a thing that everything Jesus did, including giving himself his life on that cross and all that he went through by the power of the Holy Spirit who helped him to do that. That would be fine. But I think it means much more than that. I think it means, when it says this term, the eternal Spirit gave power, efficacy, to the blood of Christ. What does efficacy mean? It means the power to produce the intended effect. The power to produce the intended effect. Normally when blood is shed or poured out, that blood is dead. It's gone. But the Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit, speaks of endlessness everlasting, beyond time and space, now present, ever active, always available, indiminishable, imperishable. Something happened. The eternal Spirit gave efficacy, give the power to produce the attendant effect— so that the blood of Christ would ever live on eternally, forever. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, avails for us today and always will avail throughout all eternity. Jesus took that blood and presented it in the heavenly sanctuary, just the way that high priest did it in the Old Testament. But Jesus presented his blood, and it was powerful, the most powerful thing in the whole universe but it was through the eternal Spirit that it was offered up. And so something precious is happening here. There's such a correlation between the blood and the Spirit. By the way, tonight I want to show you the opposite of that. I want to show you the other side of that coin between the Spirit and the blood. Both are dependent on one another. Jesus Christ lives in the power of an endless life. His work is eternal. It's enduring. (laughs) Jesus right now sits at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for each one of us. That work has continued for this past 2,000 years and will continue. There's an eternal quality about Christ and his work and it mentions the eternal spirit, letting us know that this little life that we live is very narrow, it's very short, it's a breath, it's a vapor, but the rest of life is all eternity into eternity into eternity. It will roll on and roll on throughout all the ages of eternity forever and Christ's blood will still be as powerful. It will never, ever, ever lose its power, as the old hymn says. In Hebrews chapter 7, again, we see something here about the enduring work and ministry of Christ. Hebrews chapter 7. likening Christ onto Melchizedek, that strange priest that Abraham met, of whom there was no genealogy. Now, without beginning, without ending, that didn't mean he was supernatural and had no beginning or no ending, because only God is that. But it meant there was no genealogy because he was a type of Christ who would live in the power of an endless life. And it says here in verse 15 of Hebrews 7, And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so there's something here about the eternal life of Christ and the eternal power of of the Holy Spirit that goes together and the eternal quality about the blood of Jesus. In, in Hebrews chapter 7 we read, but again over in Hebrews chapter 9... Verse 11, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and cows, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats... And Bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of flesh. We read that earlier: "How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot unto God? And so there are several verses that you could read over and over that tells us about the eternal life of Christ and the eternal spirit and the eternal blood that's always continually available for everybody it's available. Because the blood of Christ offered through the eternal spirit, verse 14 of chapter 9, we have the promise of eternal inheritance in verse 15. Because of the blood of Christ offered up through the eternal spirit, you and I have been given an eternal inheritance. Something about eternity must get into our hearts. If it doesn't We'll simply live for time. But thank God for eternity. And thank God for inheritance in eternity. (laughs) What is that inheritance? There's lots, lots. The Bible is full of stuff to tell us about our eternal inheritance. And so no matter how good it may be on earth, no matter how much God blesses you in this lifetime, it will not even compare to what is our inheritance in the glory in the heavenly place. It's going to be wonderful. Two baggers sitting in New York City on the pavement. And one of them was crying uncontrollably. He was beside himself. And the other bagger looked at him and said, What is wrong with you? Why are you crying? He said, Have you not heard? Heard what? He says, John D. Rockefeller has just died. John D. Rockefeller was a multi-billionaire. <coughs> he says, John D. Rockefeller has just died. And the other fellow says, well, what's that to you? you sure you weren't related to him? He says, that's why I'm crying. <laughs> you see, he says, if you had been related and Rockefeller died, he was thinking, I'll be in his will. <laughs> that's why he was crying. <laughs> Do you know that God has made a will for you? This is Christ's last will and testament for you. Now, let me say this. I've said this several times over the years, and I don't know if any of you have ever obeyed me. But if you haven't, you need to. If you are married and if you have children, or if you have children and you're not married, but you have assets. You may have a home, you may have some jewelry, you may have a car, you have something. Please, please make a will. Will you do that? And we sat say, I don't like thinking about those things. I'm, I'm young, oh, make a will. Do it this week. I promise you, if you don't, and you have some assets, and you don't make a will, you are leaving a mess for somebody to work through. And let me tell you, it will be a mess. So many families has been ripped apart over will or even lack of will. Now, if you make a will, understand that you could make one today, and you could change your mind tomorrow. You could make a 100 wills. But the will that will count will be the last one before you die. All the other ones doesn't mean a thing. The one that counts will be the one when you die. That's the one that will be enforced. And better to have a will made than the government stepping in and stripping your assets, because that's what they'll do. So better unemotionally. Sit down someday and think, what do we have? Or what do I have? What do I want to happen to? If if suddenly we were taken, even unexpectedly, what's going to happen to our stuff? Who is going to get it? And say, David, it sounds a bit morbid. No, it's, it's sensible. It's wise. Please do this. It'll save a lot of headache later on. Now, the Lord God himself has made a will for us. And we see here in Hebrews chapter 9 again. Now let me tell you something else about a will. When you make a will, you need to have an executor for your will, somebody who will execute your will when you die. And that could be a family relative. It could be a trusted friend. It could be somebody that, you know, that you're really, really friendly with and and who will keep the secret or whatever. Uh, But when you die, then they and your solicitor will uh, execute that will for you. They'll contact the family. They'll say, this was your last will and testament. So-and-so's to get such and such, and she's to get this, and he's to get that. And uh, that will could be contested. That doesn't happen that often, but it's possible. Some family members say, well, that's not fair. How come she got all the jewelry? How come he got the house? Why, why was that divided up amongst us all? So, so it can't be contested. Doesn't mean it can be successfully contested, but it could be contested. But you're executor is the one with your solicitor, with your legal representation who will make sure that your will is carried out. Now that's relevant to what we're going to read here. Verse 16 of of Hebrews chapter 9. For where there is a testament there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Where there is a will you could put the word will in there. There must be the death of the testator, the person who made the will. That's what I said a moment ago. Until you die, that will will not be enforced. But when you die, then it will be. But you have to die first. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no part at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So, the writer goes back to the Old Testament and said, listen, that was the testament then. That was the will of God. But it was ratified through blood. Blood had to be shed to ratify that before that could be enacted. And we saw through our our teaching these past few weeks, we saw the Passover Lamb, and we saw the high priest sprinkling the blood in the mercy seat, and so forth, and so on. Blood had to be shed before that will could be carried out. Therefore, Not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins." Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into the heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, then he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, by his own blood, that is. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, and so forth. Now, just the way that the old... Testament had to be ratified with blood, so this New Testament, this new will, had to be also ratified with blood, and with the blood of the Lamb of God, who was slain before the foundation of the world, with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. When you die, you will have an executor to carry out your will. But when Christ died, Christ rose again from the dead and he became the executor of his own will. (laughs) And there's a mighty big difference. He was the executor of his own will. He was the one who ratified God's will in his own blood for us we're the beneficiaries of his will. But he is the executor of his will. He is making sure that his will will come true in our lives. Now, that may be cont- In fact, that will be contested. The devil will contest God's will in your life. He'll do it every day of your life. But that doesn't mean he has to be successful. Sure, it doesn't. But he will contest. He will say, but you shouldn't get that. God doesn't want to give you that. He'll constantly, constantly try to make God a liar in your life. But Jesus Christ is the executor of his own will. And as long as he lives, and he lives forever, then he will make sure that even though the devil will try to come against us to thwart God's will, he will make sure his will is carried out. Glory to God. And so we see here how important it is that he had to shed his blood and that that blood is still efficacious. It's still given the power to do what it was intended to do. John 14 and 16, and we'll not just read that at this moment, but if you read John 14 and 16... You will see there that over and over and over again, Jesus spoke to his disciples several times and warned them and told them that soon he would die and he would be gone from their sight. I remember a couple of weeks ago we spoke about this, how they didn't understand that. They didn't want to know that. They didn't expect that. It wasn't on their radar at all that Jesus would die. He was the great Messiah. He was going to set up his kingdom on earth right now. They just didn't understand that Jesus would have to die and shed his blood and go away and come back again. He says, I'll be with you for a little while, then I'm going, but I'll be back again. And so over and over again, he tells them what he's going to do, but they just weren't quite getting it. They just weren't ready to understand and to receive and to understand what his will was at that particular time. But they would later. They would later. And the Holy Spirit would be the one, he said, will show you things to come. He's the Spirit of truth, and he will explain Everything I'm telling you now, Jesus said, even though you don't understand it, but the Holy Spirit will bring this to your attention. He will help you to see this, and you will understand it. Not now, but later you'll understand. You're sorrowful, but later you'll be filled with joy when the Holy Spirit comes. And so there's such a connection. There's such a friendship. There's such a working together between the blood and the Spirit. The Apostle Paul tells us about the will of God in Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, he mentions the will of God four times. But in Ephesians chapter 1, he prays this wonderful prayer for the believers in Ephesus. And because this is recorded by the Holy Spirit, it's for us too. It's not just something in history. It's something right now that we should pay attention to because this is what God's will is for us as well as for them. And so he prays here in verse 15 of Ephesians 1. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. What was he praying? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What a prayer. What a desire for the saints. And the Holy Spirit records this for us. That is God's will for us. I mean, that prayer, we should almost learn to, even to memorize that prayer, if we could. It's such a great, great prayer. And it talks about the, 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 the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the sin. What riches has God got for us? A moment ago, we talked about a will. What is in the bank of heaven for us today? The bank of heaven is full of spiritual riches for each and every individual one of us today. It is inexhaustible. As long as we live in this life and all throughout eternity, there will be the bank of heaven which will be open with these riches for us to be able to live this life both now and all through eternity. It's a wonderful inheritance that we have got. And then Paul goes on to... Pray again in chapter 3. We should make these prayers very personal prayers. Verse 14 of chapter 3 For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What prayers, what will God has for us today. If we just sat down, this afternoon, and read that through slowly and put our names in there and say, God, this is for me. This is your will for my life. I think we would read it through different eyes. Not just something 2,000 years ago, but today, for me, today. In Hebrews chapter 13, and we're just about almost finished. The writer to the Hebrews, verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. See how close the rate it is, the blood is there to Christ. How the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The blood of the everlasting covenant, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself up to God. Every sin that we've ever committed To the day we get saved is wiped out because of the blood. I don't know how that works. I don't know the mechanisms by which that happens. And none of us need to know. But it happens. Every sin that we could ever commit, we could bow our knee and say, Lord, please forgive me. And it's wiped away the blood of the everlasting covenant. Aren't you glad for that today? And what a relationship between the blood of Jesus and the eternal spirit, working together on our behalf to bring us into God's eternal inheritance for us. How can we lose in this life if we have the blood and we have the spirit? The blood on its own is powerful. The spirit on his own is powerful. But when the two come together, when the two work together on our behalf, then nothing, nothing, nothing can defeat us if we believe it, if we understand it. No demon in hell, no devil can stop us if we believe that the eternal spirit and the blood of Christ is fighting on our behalf because the enemy has no power to overcome either of them and when the two are together it's even more powerful isn't it so thank God for his spirit and thank God for his blood tonight I want to show you the other side of that coin how the spirit is dependent upon the blood I'm not sure if you ever even thought of this but the Holy Spirit was very, very dependent upon the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'll highlight that tonight to show you that, to show you how the two continually work together to give us strength, to give us victory, to give us power, to give us this life that he wants us to live right in and right through all eternity. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast.